Uh, good morning, family. Uh, how are you all doing this morning? It's not as cold, not as hot. Yay? Nay? Good? This morning uh, started quite early for me, and uh, I'm, I've got a short-sleeved shirt under this shirt, but I've also got a long john under these pants. And I was, as I was putting on my long johns this morning, there was this little, like, rubber band that just came loose, and I'm a little bit of a aandacht of labor, attention deficit, so if I know that there's a little wire in my, on my strap, I'm not going to focus. So what I did was I took a lighter, and I just, you know, you burn it. But that one caught fire like crazy, <laughs> and I slapped it like this. And when I slapped it, I lifted my hand, and my finger was burning. So the rubber stuck to my finger, but there's this small little black spot there now, and it's hurting like crazy. So um, fire is hot. That's the lesson for today. Be careful of the eternal fire. Boom. Sermon done. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eugene van Dieventer, and this week is a very special week for our family because it is our son that turns seven on Monday. And at all these birthdays, my wife and I are just like, can we just slow the stuff down and just, you know, look at our kids so I get a little bit nostalgic and I go on my phone and I uh, found this video. Play it, JP. Okay, where you leaky? Yeah. Van wat sing jy? Tiger. A tiger. Don't tell Malia that I showed that video in church. <laughs> it's our little secret because she's at that delicate stage. People mustn't know. <laughs> but don't you just think uh, you want to press pause, you know, and just slow things down. Look how cute he is, so little. And he sang so nice, and he's not like that anymore. He's got, if you talk about dinosaurs, it's dinosaurs. He knows all of them, like seriously. They say clever kids do that, but I understand it. I'm his father, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but I think the bigger thing that you also want in your children's lives are for them to be, like, safe and secure. And the more, the more I get older, the more worried I get about these kids, right? You know, will they, like, especially when I had, like, COVID, long COVID, and I thought I was not going to make it. My heart, I was in hospital every three months and things like that. And then you start worrying, have I provided for them? Not only financially and will they be fine when I'm gone or, you know, but did I, was I too strict with them or was I not strict enough with them, you know? And um, will I be able to show them God and 
will I be able to pay for their schooling or will Malia get a good husband? Will Rain love his wife? You know, all those types of things. And you start worrying about all these things. Will I be able to pay the mortgage on the house and all these things? And it makes you anxious. The older I get, the more anxious I get. What are your worries, guys? <laughs> Don't you get worried, Kirion? What are you worried about? I know he just signed for a contract for, to buy a house. So how are you worried? You worried about what? Money? Yes, he keep you awake at night. What, what keeps you awake at, awake at night, Donnie? <laughs> Does she make you anxious? <laughs> Is that the only thing that keeps you awake at night? We all have anxieties, right? What's the one that's on the top of your list? It's quite scary world we grow up in and live in and raise our kids in. And that turned really south really fast from birthdays to doomsdays in five seconds flat, right? <laughs> okay, okay, let's snap out of it. Today we are talking about a new sermon series, week three, it's Undignified. Uh, and we are going through the Hebrew words of praise. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at the life of King David. Now, what's fascinating about King David is what? It's probably one of the most well-documented life stories in the Bible, both in the first and third person. So, in the books of Psalms and, uh, and Samuel, we will find, Samuel you'll find the third person, and Psalms you'll find the first person things. And there we can read about the story about this guy, King David, whom God called really close to his heart, a person close to his heart. But uh, when we read Samuel and Psalms, we realize, why? <laughs> this guy is not a good guy or a nice guy most of the time. In fact, he broke all Ten Commandments, had many enemies, huge numbers of his own people hated him, and even his own son, Absalom led a revolt against him to overthrow government. Now, I don't know about you, but if your own son throws a revolt and a coup d'etat against his father, somewhere David got the parenting thing wrong, right? <laughs> it's not that uh, nice to find out your son wants to overthrow and kill you. So why would God... Call the seemingly contentious man a man close to his heart. And pervert, pervert, preserve, preserve all these stories for thousands and thousands of years for us to hear it. Because we do believe the Holy Spirit has a hand in the Bible, right? The answer lies not in the way that David lived his fleshly life, but more in how he approached this almighty, omnipotent God. undignified. Now, whom of you can tell me what the word undignified means? And go. It's difficult, no? Well, it's the opposite to dignified, right? But if we look at the word undignified in the Oxford Dictionary, it says the following. It's an adjective. 
it's an adjective, appearing foolish or unseemly, lacking in dignity, like an undignified exit. That was quite rude exit. It's not very dignified. Now, this is interesting. I had often heard people say, have some dignity, man. Or you see the dignitaries, those foreign dignitaries over there. Um, they are quite important people, right? You would think someone with dignity is a good thing, but is it really? If we ask ourselves what is at the core of the word dignity, it is what? Uplifting oneself to maintain the appearance of importance and competence. Showcasing an image of being worthy. In other words, it's just a little bit more fancy word for pride, right? <laughs> Therefore, acting with dignity is not just encouraging the world to recognize you, to see you, and in essence subliminally worship you, but there is only one being that will ever be worthy of worship, right? And that's God Almighty, the one that created you. And as we delve more and more into David's life, we will realize that that is the one thing he got right. Undignified worship. And I believe that is what motivated God to call him a man dear to his heart. Now, last week, we looked at David's very, very sinful life where he responded in worship and how he responded in worship after the prophet Nathan uh, confronted him with his adultery, his murder, and, of course, all the corruption that went together with that. And who can remember the word that Rudo taught us? Barak. Everybody say, Barak. What does it mean? To bow down, to change position, to face upon the floor in reverence towards a creator to whom you are accountable for all your sins. Just a quick question. Whom have you baracked this week? And I don't mean figuratively. I mean literally. Because barak is a literal action. Now we keep coming to church and we learn all these things, but when are we going to implement it in our lives? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If the Holy Spirit compels us to do something, who are we the ones to stifle Him? And if you can't walk away here on Sunday and live what you have learned, you're a fraud. So if the Holy Spirit is encouraging you now, do some introspection and don't play church. Undignified worship. Your life is not your own, and you've been bought with an eternal price. And with that heavenly transaction, you are accountable for your life's actions. So Rudo spoke about Barak, and today we are looking at the next word. And before we jump into the next word, let us just quickly pray and ask God to still our hearts, keep us focused, especially after I was a little bit. And let's open ourselves in an undignified way. Lord, we are open towards you. We are vulnerable towards you. 
And if we struggle to barak, Lord, it means we are too dignified to submit ourselves towards you. May we live undignified lives. And may we worship you the way that you want and not which is comfortable for us. May we learn something new about your heart today and soften our ears and soften our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone says, amen. So, we are jumping into 2 Samuel 15. Get out your Bibles. Can anyone, everyone read there if you haven't got your Bibles? Let's go through this. It's a story of Absalom's conspiracy. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand at the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him and say, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they would receive justice. (laughs) Now it's very clear that Absalom is trying to dignify himself. He's trying to make himself a judge of the land, make himself a dignitary. Uh, And the reason why he's trying to uplift himself is because he's got a plan. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, his father, David, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messages throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. When Absalom was offered sacrifices, he also sent for Athithopel and the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept increasing. David flees. A messenger came to David. The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever your lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the place, the palace. The whole countryside wept aloud, verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the peoples passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar, 
offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. And if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him, the Lord, do whatever seems good to him. Now, this is absolutely fascinating to me, right? See the stark contrast between David and Absalom's behavior. Where Absalom is trying to dignify himself, David is totally humbling himself towards God. He's undignifying himself. He knows if it is the will of God that he must be king, then God will make it so. If he doesn't, and he doesn't have to fight for dignity, right? He trusts God, even in the testing times. This is absolutely fascinating. Let's read further. Further, The king said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, and this is also very interesting, weeping as he went. This is not a good time for David. Even though he's still undignified, he's weeping. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. 2 Samuel 16 from verse 5. As David, King David approached Bahiram, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Though all the troops and special guard were on David's right and left, as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over there and cut off his head. But king said, the king said, What does this have to do with you, your son, son of, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask why do the why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood, is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. Once again, David still chooses to undignify himself. He could have bragged about the millions of times he saved Saul's life. <laughs> but there he takes the stones, he takes the ridicule, because he knows there's something bigger at play here. So David and his men continued along the road while Shammai was going alongside the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king... And all of the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. Later on we read that Absalom commandeers thousands and thousands of men 
to go and kill David. When reading this passage, it seems at this stage things aren't going well for David. Imagine being a king of a nation and then in a mad rush you have to vacate your house, your lifestyle, and not because it's a foreign agent that's coming in to take over, it's your own son. What emotions must be running through David's mind? Anxiety, anger, grief, depression, physical pain and hunger, mental and emotional exhaustion. And remember, David was traveling with hundreds, if not thousands, of his subjects. So he was not just taking responsibility for his own life. He was taking responsibility physically and emotionally for these people who are still following him. They're looking for answers towards him. I think he is really, really in a bad spot and tired. What's fascinating to me is the way that David keeps responding. Not once does he lose it and respond in anger or revenge or malice. What's up with this guy? Why is he not snapping? It's because he has a secret weapon. Light years ahead of his time. The secret weapon's name is Toda. What is Toda? Let's read in Psalm 100. Shout to the joy of the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. Ever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell the story. Those he redeemed from the hands of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty. So as you can see, Tordah in the Psalms usually refer to thanksgiving for things not yet received as well as things that are happening now. It also means to be thankful even during difficult times. Todah means raising one's hands, praise with thanksgiving, and utter gratitude. In contrast to barak, which means to bow down, and in some instances, putting your face on the floor. Now, it is important to know when David was confronted with his own sin, his own afflictions, what did he do? He baraked. But when he was confronted with a world, with sickness, disease, 
with adversary, what did he do? He gave thanks. Now, that sounds crazy. Why would I be thankful when everything is going wrong and against me? Here's an exhausted list of neuroscience of gratitude. So I started looking for what does gratitude do to your brain, right? Page one. Next 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 one. I stopped at 100. Then I was like, I can't. Those are all the citations of the way gratitude positively influences your life. Did you know, scientifically, your brain cannot experience anxiety and gratitude at the same time? It's not physically possible. And what's fascinating about that previous list, all the studies were after 2002. So somewhere, the creator of the universe told us there's a way you can deal with this stuff. It's not just about praising me, but it's about living the good life in your DNA. So before computers existed, before electrodes were strong enough and the technology was strong enough to see these things, the Holy Spirit already knew. And through his loving way, he showed it to David, to Paul, to Jesus, the disciples, all these people. I want to read you something from uh, an article culminating all these things. Gratitude and anxiety cannot coexist. Our brain operates in either the sympathetic, fight or flight, or parasympathetic, rest and digest mode. For the purpose, the purpose of the sympathetic mode is to protect us in life-threatening emergency situations. Our body will respond quickly. Think hunter and a lion, etc., etc. The parasympathetic mode is our rest and digest mode. And this is the state in which most of us should be most of the time. But in modern society, the constant stresses in our life can cause us to stay in the sympathetic fight or flight mode. So how do we train ourselves to move out of the fight or flight and back into a restful, calm state? Being in a state of gratitude has a potent effect on moving us to a, to a parasympathetic rest or digest state. When we express gratitude, we receive the same. Our brain releases dopamine and serotonin, the two crucial neurotransmitters responsible for our emotions. And they make us feel better immediately, enhancing our mood. There are a number of health benefits to regularly practicing gratitude. In Alex Korb's article, How Gratitude Shapes Our Brain, he shares how studies have shown that a consistent gratitude practice helps with the following. Releases negative emotions, reduces pain, improves your sleep quality, and reduces anxiety and depression. Being aware of the powerful benefits of gratitude practice, some people consider creating a gratitude journal to list all the things they are thankful for on a regular basis. By consciously practicing gratitude, we can train the brain to focus on positive thoughts and emotions, moving us to in, into the restful parasympathetic state. 
thereby improving your overall health and well-being. Now, I propose the following to you. If you don't believe in God of the Bible, the God of the Bible exists and is living and active in our lives, then I don't see what else will move you. How could the Bible already have the answer before neuroscience discovered it 2,000 years later? The same God who created the natural world and its scientific wonder is the God who created you and your DNA. And in the Bible, there are countless phrases of joy versus anxiety. Countless. That's why it's called the upside-down kingdom. It just doesn't make sense, right? Philippians 4, verse 67 says the following that really sums it together. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who on this planet has more reason to be thankful and have gratitude? other than Christians. Our biggest form of gratitude lies in a Savior that laid, that laid down His life so that we can keep ours. We are eternally indebted to the one who created and died for us. In return, we need to lay down our lives. We need to become undignified. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what struggles you are facing. It might be medical. It might be financial. It might be relational. And it's tough. I know. But let's pick up our crosses daily and rise from the pits of hell as a living sacrifice. Our lives are not our own anymore. But you know what? Nor are our anxieties. Living a dignified life will kill you. In all senses. Be undignified. And show him the todah, the gratitude, which he so richly deserves. When I looked at that video of Rain, he wasn't very dignified in contrast to Malia that was like, I want to get it perfect. Can I see? Did I do it well? If you could choose, how would you worship God? With dignity or without? 